if you will, turn in your Bibles to the 19th chapter, the Gospel of Matthew, as we continue our study through the Word. So you will remember that after the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, as Jesus now begins to set his face towards Jerusalem, we see that Jesus has been focused on instilling the kingdom principles into his disciples. And you will remember that they started to get excited. They started to talk amongst themselves. Uh, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And, and they bring that question to Jesus. And you'll remember that Jesus brings a little child before them. And he teaches on humility, that the way up in the kingdom of God is down. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be the servant of, of all. So an exact inversion of the way that our culture and our world uh, operates. And you will remember that in speaking about the kingdom and being great in the kingdom, he, he went right to holiness, right to sin. And how aggressive each and every one of us needs to, to deal with sin, how dangerous sin is. And oftentimes we, we don't give it the due. Then we are not concerned with it as we ought to be. Jesus, in seeking to drive the point home, became very graphic. He said that if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. In other words, do not compromise with sin whatsoever. And yet, when we do stumble, when we do fail, when we do blow it, Jesus also wanted us to know that there is a good shepherd that leaves the 99, that comes and, and rescues us and finds us. And, and so, the love of the Father, it is always a searching love. It is always a chasing love love. Did you know that God's chasing after your heart today? Do you know that his desire is, is that you would draw closer to him today than, than you were yesterday? That's his, that is his desire. And, and Jesus reflected that in that loving parable of the good shepherd. We, we see that Jesus went on to talk about relationships and how important relationships with one another are. And God's desire and plan for mankind is unity. God created you, God created me to be in communion, fellowship with him and fellowship with others. And he wants rich, thick, successful relationships. And, and so Jesus taught about what happens when conflict comes in. And he talked about the necessity of finding your voice and going to that person and, and confronting them with their sin, telling them that you were hurt by what happened and giving them that opportunity to be able to resolve the conflict, to thicken the relationship and to move forwards. If, if they don't receive it, he said, then don't leave it there go with one or two more. And, and if not, still don't leave it there. Bring it to the church. And, and if not there, then keep on loving them as you would somebody who is outside of the faith. And, and we see in this, once again, the, the, the command of the Lord not to leave conflict unresolved. Because conflict unresolved in the heart 
turns into bitterness. And so bitterness then takes over and destroys our capacity to be able to love. It destroys our capacity to be able to love God. It destroys our capacity to, to love others. And so just as sin is destructive in our lives, so is unforgiveness and, and bitterness also. And you will remember that, that Peter immediately asked, well, then how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? And, and you remember that Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And so we, we see here once again that there is to be no limit of our capacity, listen, no limit of our capacity to forgive others. And the reason why there is no limit of our capacity is because of how we have been forgiven. There is no limit to how much God has forgiven you. He has forgiven all. And you remember that he gave that parable of the, uh, of the man who owed millions and millions of dollars and was forgiven it because of the mercy of the king. And then that servant went out and, and for a few thousand dollars throws his fellow servant into the, into the prison. And, and so you remember that Jesus drives home that point of, uh, of when someone offends you, think of the forgiveness that you're going to give out to others in comparison to how much God has forgiven you of every single thing that you have ever done in your entire life. And, and so that good heart, that forgiving heart, that relational integrity. We see this is what God's desire is uh, for us. We see how the world and sin and bitterness, we see that it tears apart. Satan is seeking to destroy relationships and God is seeking to hold us together, to build us up and to have great unity with uh, one another. And so uh, we begin here now in the first verse of this 19th chapter. And Jesus is going to depart from Galilee. It's the last time that he is going to be in Galilee. He is headed now towards uh, Jerusalem uh, for the Passover feast and, and for ultimately the crucifixion. And so time is really becoming short in his uh, earthly ministry as he is with the disciples. And, and when time Time is short. Every moment becomes important. Every teaching becomes exceedingly more pressed together. And it is interesting to see those things that Jesus goes to now and really begins to, to pour into the disciples. And so he's been talking about unity and, and forgiveness. And, and verse 1, it says, and now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings. What sayings? Chapters 16, 17, and 18 are the sayings that, that Jesus finishes. It says that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Remember that Jesus' popularity is overwhelming at this point. He, he is going to head towards Jerusalem, and Jerusalem lay south of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee feeds into the Jordan River, and then the Jordan River bisects the Transjordan Valley. So there is a valley, and the Jordan River runs right through the middle of the valley. The hill country lies in between the, uh, the Transjordan Valley and the Mediterranean Ocean. So there's this whole spine of hills, 
And, and when you're going to walk from Galilee to uh, Jerusalem, you cut down into the flatland of the Jordan River and you follow along the Jordan River. Now, the western side of the Jordan River, that, that is where you have got all of the Jewish settlements. On the other side, on the eastern side uh, of the Jordan River, that's where the, the ten Gentile cities are that's known as the Decapolis. It's, it's in the region that is known as Pieria. And so Jesus is avoiding the heavily populated Jewish side and, and he heads over to the other side and, and this is the way that he is coming down towards Galilee. And, and it says then, and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. We see that the popularity and power of Jesus wasn't restricted just to Galilee. It was also evident to even in Judea. It's interesting, and notice with me, it says, a great multitudes and great multitudes followed him. But it doesn't say that they believed in him. They followed him, but didn't believe in him. They were interested in him, interested in the stories, interested in the uh, reputation, but they didn't apprehend him as the, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And, and it says in verse 3, and the Pharisees uh, also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, this wasn't an honest question. This was a, a, a raging issue in their day. Uh, but they didn't come seeking what God's will is on the matter. It says they came testing him. It means that they were setting a trap for him. They were trying to put Jesus onto the horns of a, a dilemma. And, and there was a very liberal viewpoint on divorce, and there was a very conservative viewpoint on divorce. And, and so by asking Jesus to declare, he is going to take, and, and his popularity is going to decrease with whichever side he does not agree with. And, and so they come now testing him. Is it lawful to divorce a wife for just any reason? Now, the scripture that has to deal with this comes from Deuteronomy. It comes from when Moses received the law at Sinai, and he comes down, and in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. And so we see that the question really becomes when she finds that some uncleanness in her. And so... What is the definition of uncleanness? What does that include or exclude? And, and so we see that there were followers of Hillel, who was a, a very powerful and influential rabbi of the day, felt that uh, he could divorce uh, his wife for almost uh, any reason whatsoever. It was a very liberal view. It was also a very popular uh, view. But there was also Shammai, Rabbi Shammai, and he was the, the leading conservative rabbi of that day. And, 
And he said that you could not divorce your wife unless she was guilty of sexual offense. And, and so this was a, a much more strict and it was a, a more unpopular view. We see that with Shammai, the school of Shammai, the matter of indecency or uncleanness meant fornication and fornication only. And that for no other cause could a wife be put away. On the other hand, Hillel interpreted the matter of uncleanness or indecency in the widest possible way. They said that it meant that a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner. That was reason enough uh, to divorce. If she went with unbound hair, so if your hair was unkempt, divorce. Uh, that, that was uh, allowable. Or if she spoke, ready, disrespectfully of his parents in his presence. That's it right there. That's grounds for uh, divorce. And, uh, and so uh, Rabbi Akaba even went to the length of saying that the phrase uh, that if you have found uncleanness in her means uh, if she finds no favor in his eyes meant that a man could divorce his wife if he found a woman who he liked better and considered more beautiful. So this now was grounds for divorce. And, and this was the culture, this was the state of marriage in Jesus's day and how far it had devolved from what God had originally intended it to be. And so we see that during that in Jesus's day, the, the liberal school of Hillel was the, uh, was the one that was uh, prevailing. Now, to really give you a full understanding of the state of marriage, it is interesting to know that underneath rabbinic law, listen, divorce was compulsory for two reasons. It was compulsory for adultery. So uh, underneath rabbinic law, they were teaching that there was no room for forgiveness, there was no room for restoration of the uh, marriage, that uh, divorce uh, was compulsory if adultery was uh, involved. And second, divorce was compulsory if sterility was involved. The object of marriage uh, was procreation of children, and if after 10 years a couple was childless, then divorce was compulsory. Uh, in the case, the, uh, the husband and the wife might remarry, but the same regulation uh, also carried into the second marriage. And so, in effect, in the background of what was going on culturally, we see that the Pharisees were asking Jesus whether he favored the strict view of uh, Shammai uh, or the laxer view of, uh, of Hillel. Hillel could be summarized, if you would, as no-fault divorce. Something now that we see in our culture, you are able to just simply go and get a divorce. She doesn't even have to burn your dinner. She doesn't even have to speak ill of your parents in, in front of you. Just the simple fact of, I don't think that we are going to be happy together. Or citing irreconcilable differences. That this is enough today to be able to go and to file divorce and papers. With, uh, with one another. And so we see that we have got uh, very common areas with regards to the backdrop of, uh, of where marriage and divorce uh, has come. And so 
Now, Jesus, which is it? Is it a liberal view of divorce or is it a very strict view of divorce? And in verse 4 it says, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? The Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce and rabbinical opinions. But Jesus wanted to go back to the scriptures and, and talk about marriage. And, and in doing that, really, we see the example that always in our lives, we are to test everything against the scriptures. Every issue that there is, look at the news, look at the culture, look at everything in life, and look at it through the lens of the word of God, because the word of God will give you clarity of understanding of the world that you are living in and that is going on around you. And so Jesus doesn't get into the, uh, the, the middle here you know, of, uh, of an internet conflict that is going on. We see that he jumps and pulls it all the way back to scriptures. Have you not read, he says to them. And then he quotes out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. We see that Jesus indicated that God was the one. God was the one that made man. And God is the one that made woman. And, and that he made them different. And then God joined them together in marriage. In this we see that Jesus asserts God's authority over marriage. It is God's institution. And because it is God's institution, we see that nobody can change that institution except God. Nobody has authority over marriage except the one who created marriage, and that is God. Today we see our culture tries to change the definition of marriage. Marriage is between a male and a female, it is a covenant that was established by God. And so we see here that in the creating them male and female, we see that gender is an inherent part of God's creation and that there are distinct differences between men and women. We see today our culture is blurring the roles and the responsibilities and the identity of men versus women. But we see that God is very clear that he created them differently and that he created them for the roles and responsibilities that he has given to them, that they might come together and work into a oneness, into a wholeness. We see the way in which God created us in the very beginning. We see that he chose different sources of creation. So men and women were created from different sources. God took dirt and breathed dirt, his life breath into, into dirt, and that's guys that were dirt that God breathed breath into. And then what did he do for women? He didn't use the dirt. He took a rib from Adam, and out of that, he, he formed the woman. And so the very source of creation of, of man and woman was different. We see that there were different methods of creation. One he took an inanimate. The other he took and put Adam to sleep and took from the rib and did surgery on him. We see that it was different times of creation. He made Adam first, and then later on, he puts Adam to sleep and takes the rib and makes the woman. We also 
also see that he gave them different names at creation. And so we see that men and women are different in every aspect, all the way direct from creation. But Today we see that uh, there is growing confusion uh, on the issue of male and female. I, I want you to know that that's an exact attack on the authority of the word of God. God is the one that makes them male and female. And God doesn't make mistakes. Amen? God does not make mistakes. And also we recognize and understand that confusion is from the enemy. And so the enemy seeks to bring that which is clear, that which is easy to understand, and he seeks to bring confusion into it. Today we have the whole transgender issue. The, the issue of uh, I'm a male trapped in a female's body or I'm a female trapped in a male's body and I have to get to my true identity and that I'm a mistake and I'm seeking to become my true self by overcoming the mistake that I was born into. And, and so we, we see this issue is continuing to to grow in our culture today. When it comes to the issue of transgender, the Bible is very clear on it. It's not confusing whatsoever. Even cross-dressing, even cross-dressing the Word of God is very clear on simply not assuming the identity that God has given to you at birth. In Deuteronomy chapter 22.5, it states, A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. And so here we see from the word of God that this, that this isn't open for debate. This isn't ambiguous when it comes to the issue that God has ruled on this. We see that the Apostle Paul writes about the importance of maintaining the gender roles, the traditional gender roles in his letter to the churches. Now, when it comes to the transgender issue, once again, I want to read to you what is published out of the American College of Pediatricians. And it says that human sexuality is an objective, biological, binary trait. XY and XX are genetic markers of male and female, respectively not genetic markers of a disorder. The norm for human design is to be conceived either male or female. Human sexuality is binary by design with the obvious purpose being the reproduction and flourishing of our species. This principle is self-evident. And so we see here that those who suffer from gender identity disorder are people who feel that they are trapped in the opposite sex. And it says here with clarity, listen to this, no one is born with an awareness of themselves as male or female. When you're born, You're not aware whether or not you are male or female at birth. This awareness develops over time 
and like all developmental processes, may be derailed by a child's subjective perceptions, relationships, and adverse experiences from infancy forward. People who identify as feeling like the opposite sex or somewhere in between do not compromise a third sex. They remain biologically men or biologically women. And so we see that the scripture provides the creation background for what we see plainly in biology. But the texts also show us that God's creation was, listen, and is good. When God created them, male and female, he stepped back and he said, it is good. And so we see that male and female are perfectly complementary in biology, physiology, emotion, and spirit. The transgender issue brings up not just the transgender issue, not just the cross-dressing issue, but also the homosexual issue that has gained so much acceptance from our mainstream culture. But once again, is this a confusing topic in the Word of God, or is the Word of God absolutely clear on the issue? A person can decide what they think is moral or not moral. That's called moral relativity. But what what we've got is moral objectivity, and that is God is the one that created the definition of a sin. And so he is the one that has the authority to be able to tell us what is right and what is wrong, not what I feel is right or what I feel is wrong. And so uh, on this issue, once again, God speaks very clearly in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. It says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And so uh, it's very clear what the word of God has to say. In fact, in Leviticus 20:13, it says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death and their blood is upon them. And so here we see that, that in the Old Testament, underneath the law, we see that, that death was the penalty for breaking God's law in this sexual deviation. And so transgenderism is a, a sad symptom of a soul that is in torment, that is in great and deep pain. And so we have great compassion upon anybody that is in such a state of internal pain. But at the same time, we see that the word of God tells us that the answer is not to enable that, is not to spend money for sex change operations and irreversible drug harm that happens when hormonal transplants are taking place. And, and so we see that the word of God calls sin, sin. And where do we stand on that? As a Christian, this is where we stand. We are to know what is right from what is wrong. Amen? We are to know what the word of God tells us. And we are to hate the sin and love the sinner. 
to have great compassion on every single person that has believed the lie of the enemy is traveling down paths that take them further and further away from God. And so we are to extend love to every single person, but at the same time, we are not allowed to call normal what God has called sin. And that's really what the issue is. They call normal what God has called sin. And so we are not to judge. God is the one that will judge. We are to love, but at the same time, love doesn't mean compromising our standards, compromising or changing the standard of God. And so in verse 5, Jesus continues and, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so then they are no longer two but one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so without getting into the Hillel Shammai controversy, Jesus reminded the religious leaders of God's original purpose in establishing the marriage bond. God had made people male and female. Humanity finds its fullest expression in the unity of people being made one in marriage, a sacred and inviolable covenant that was instituted by God. And so Jesus makes it plain that couples have to forsake their singleness. A man shall leave his father and mother and come together in a new permanent one flesh relationship. And so here we see that Jesus, by going all the way back to not the Mosaic law, but goes all the way back to Eden and to the law that was given there, we see that, uh, that the Lord reminds us uh, what marriage uh, is uh, supposed to be. We see, first of all, it's a divinely appointed union. A divinely appointed union. God established marriage. It's a physical union. The man and the woman become one flesh. They complement one another. The woman was taken from the man. In marriage, the woman and the man are joined back together. And so there is a wholeness. There is a oneness that takes place. And there is a physical union that joins a, a man and a woman together in marriage. It's a permanent union. And it's a union between one man and one woman. Today they are looking at legislation to pass polygamy, group marriages, two men, one woman, and all sorts of different groups and calling that now marriage. And, and what are we doing? They have changed the definition of marriage from one man to one woman to now any two people that are in love with one another. And now they are seeking to change even that definition as well. But once once again, God is very clear that it is to be between one man and one woman. One woman. And it says, and let not man separate. Now, the Jewish laws of marriage and of purity aimed high. Divorce was hated. God says, I hate divorce in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. It was said that the very altar 
wept tears when a man divorced the wife of his youth. And so we see that God's plan was that in marriage, the husband and wife become one flesh, an intimate closeness that cannot be separated. The wife is not property to be disposed of, but a person created in God's image. And, and we see that the Pharisees regarded divorce as a legal issue rather than a spiritual issue. Marriage and divorce were merely transactions similar to buying and selling land. But Jesus condemned this attitude, clarifying God's original intention that marriage should bring unity that no one should separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And it is true that in the Mosaic law, there is a provision for divorce. And it was stated now in chapter 24 that when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor, that he is to issue her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and send her out of his house. Now, I want you to know prior to this, the standard was you could just divorce by saying, I divorce you, get out of my house. And that was it. It didn't need any more than that. The husband had the authority to divorce his wife at any time just by verbally instructing her out of the house. By giving a written right of divorce, it required a cooling off period. It required time to actually go get somebody who knew how to write. Most people in that day couldn't write. It's like having to go find a notary now. And, uh, and so you had to go find a scribe. And then you had to write down the certificate of divorce. And then you had to go you know, hand it to your wife. But here was the thing. When you gave that certificate of divorce to your wife, you could never take it back again. And you could never take her back again. Even if she went and remarried somebody else and then you know, was divorced, you couldn't take her back even after that. Or uh, he dies and she's a widow, you could not take her back. So that, that written divorce was an actual protection against just a, a quick and emotional decision that a person might make. But we see that in verse 8, and he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so we see that, uh, that they were interpreting Moses' law as though it were a commandment to divorce your wife. But here we see that Moses, uh, uh, we see that Jesus makes it clear that Moses was only giving permission for divorce, but that this was not God's plan from uh, the beginning. We see that Jesus is going to the divine ideal in marriage. The two become one. It's a lifetime commitment, but because of the hardness of hearts and the inability of people to rise to God's divine ideal, God made provision through the law of Moses for a man to then divorce his wife. In verse 9, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. 
And so here we see that Jesus interprets the meaning of the word uncleanness in the Mosaic law. And we see that it refers to sexual immorality, not just anything that might displease the, uh, the husband. We see that Jesus did not teach that the offended spouse had to get a divorce. There can be forgiveness. There can be healing and restoration of a broken relationship. And this would be the Christian approach to the problem. But Jesus said because of the hardness of hearts, it is sometimes impossible to heal the wounds and to save the marriage. And divorce is the final option, but it is certainly not the first option. We see that in the Old Testament, when a person committed adultery, we see that there was the command to have them stoned to death. And we see the reason for that is uh, as adultery undermines the very fabric of society and the cell unit of society, which is the family. And so we see that there is also a, a spiritual reason for the, the, the physical capital punishment. And death breaks the marriage bond. And so uh, since marriage is a physical union, we see that this now was the, was the physical destruction of what had happened spiritually in the adultery. Now, I like what Chuck Smith had to say about this said that God made provision for people whose hearts are hardened and cannot and will not come to God's divine ideal so that divorce and remarriage is not an unpardonable sin. It is a failure to rise to the divine ideal. And so if you have suffered through divorce, if that is a part of, uh, of your family or your history or your, your own experience, I want you to know that there is absolute forgiveness, that it is not the unpardonable sin by any stretch of the imagination. There is mercy and grace in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But we are just looking at what is God's ideal, what is God's design, what is God's uh, plan. And we can, from this moment forwards move towards that ideal that God has for each and every one of our lives. So don't allow the enemy to come in with condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Don't be afraid to look at the word of God, to, to have it show you areas in, in your own life uh, where you are not completely sanctified. It is only by looking at the word of God that we know what truth is. And then God empowers us, enables us to be able to move uh, forwards. And so Jesus tells them that, uh, that divorce is, is not the will of God and, and it is because of the hardness of heart. And so Jesus takes a very conservative uh, approach and his disciples respond. His disciples uh, said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now, the, the rabbis had many sayings about unhappy marriages they said a bad wife is like leprosy to her husband. What is the remedy? Let him divorce her and be cured of his leprosy. I mean, you know, this was the, the thinking of the uh, rabbis. And, and we see that 
the disciples' response to Christ's teaching showed that they, that they didn't understand that if there's no way to get out of a bad marriage, then you're better off staying single. And Jesus now is going to talk about singleness. And he is going to say that there are three different groups of singles that, uh, that, that this is not for them. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs uh, who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs uh, who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. So when you see the word single, replace it. When you see the word eunuch, replace it with singles. There are single people who were born thus from their mother's womb. And so these are people that should not get married because of physical or emotional problems from birth. They're not stable enough to be able to be married. There are those that are single, unsexed because of uh, men. And so uh, this uh, represents castration. And, you know, that's unheard of in our culture today, but uh, in Eastern culture, harems, any of the, of the guards of the harems, uh, all of them were castrated. Many times the, the priests of cult religions were also castrated as well. And so this is a, a, a eunuch by men. And then uh, he says that there are those who are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And so uh, here we see that there are those people that are single uh, and their purpose is just the, the kingdom of God. And so as God has given them that gift of celibacy to be free to just minister. And that is a, a gift that God gives to people. But this wasn't for everybody. These are the, uh, the people to whom it applies. And then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. And so the, the children are brought to Jesus and the parents want Jesus to lay hands on them and pray for them. Wouldn't you want Jesus to lay hands on your children and, and pray for you and pray for your children? And, and so the little children are brought. But the disciples now, they disregarded the children. They wanted to shoo them away from Jesus. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Uh, and so uh, you'll remember how Jesus had taught them that uh, we have to become like uh, little children. And, uh, and here we see that once again he says, let uh, the little children come and, and do not hinder them. The interesting thing is children are such, uh, have an amazing filter on kindness. Children know who is a kind person and who is not a kind person. And, and, and I love what George MacDonald used to say. He used to say that no man could be a follower of Jesus if the children were afraid to play at his door. <laughs> and that is that, that approach of being loving and open and kind and generous to everybody. And children uh, are uh, a great filter for that. As we close our study, I wanted to draw our attention for a moment back to where uh, verse 8, Jesus said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you. 
And here we see that, you know, that once again, Jesus has been talking about relationships. He's been talking about unity. He was talking about how when there is division, when there is a, 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 an unresolved conflict, that we need to resolve that conflict. And this, in all of our relationships, including our marriage relationships, and to not allow that conflict to begin to build, that, that we just agree to disagree is not biblical. We need to work our way all the way to what is the will of God. You see, when I have my opinion and you have your opinion, we are to then drop our opinions and meet in the mind of Christ. There is always, the Bible teaches, unity in the mind of Christ. And, and so in any major issue that wouldn't divide us, we need to be able to get to resolution. We need to be able to say we're sorry. And we need to be able to forgive. Jesus has been talking about relationships, relationships, relationships. And, and then we see that if there is no ability to forgive, if there is no ability to resolve conflict, that that ultimately is going to end in the destruction of the marriage, that it is going to end in divorce. But, uh, but that God's desire, even for a struggling marriage, is that that marriage would persevere, that that marriage would get help, that it would be redeemed, that it would be restored, that the, uh, that the power of the Holy Spirit would come and help and lead and, and guide. But it says because of the hardness of the heart, it, it means I don't want to resolve this. I don't want to work through the conflicts. I don't want to work through these issues. He says that it's because of the hardness of the heart. And, and really... You know, that's what the bottom line is. With a believer, we have the revealed word of God. And we have now the responsibility to conform to the truth that is revealed to us. Now, when we don't want to, that pushback, that's hardness of heart. When the world doesn't want the truth of God's word, that's hardness of heart. When they want to sin and call it normal, that is hardness of heart. And you remember how Jesus talked about the, uh, the parable of the soils. And, and he talks about the different conditions of the heart. He talks about that hard heart that, you know what, doesn't care what truth is. They want to do what they want to do, and so they don't allow truth to penetrate their heart. They, uh, they have a, a predetermined agenda in their hand, and so they're not open to truth. And then there's the, the stony heart, and, and then there's the thorny heart, and then there's the good heart. The heart that says, God, I want to love what you love, and I want to hate what you hate. I want to stand for the kingdom principles. I want to live by the kingdom principles. And so we see the word of God gives us those kingdom principles. But once again, we are not to judge. We are to love. We're to love everybody. We're to love the lost. We're to love the confused. We're to love the hurting. It's easier to love when we only have the words uh, that are in the word of God. But 
it becomes a lot more real when they start to have names that are in our families, in our extended families. When, uh, when now suddenly it's Bill and Betty and, and Sue and, and we love them and we struggle with, with what the word of God has to say about choices that they are making. And when it becomes personal and they become ambassadors now, for the very things that God has made ruling on. What, what do we do with that? And what we do is we love them. We love them, we love them, we love them, we love them, we love them. It means that we don't compromise in the standard of right and wrong. We hate the sin, we love the sinner, and we continue to trust God in all things. We pray for them. We love them. We let God judge, but we never compromise the standard that God has given to us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. It is a, a light unto our path. It, it is, Lord, your will for our lives. So help us to grow in the grace and, and the mercy, Lord, Help us to love those that are around us. We pray for the confusion in our culture. We pray for all of those who are hurting and lost in Jesus. We ask that you would show yourself mighty in their hearts and in their lives. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.